This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. This week, I speak with Samuel Wines, co-founder of CoLabs. With Andrew Gray, Samuel founded CoLabs to be a laboratory as a service for innovators outside of the traditional academic ecosystem. CoLabs counts some exciting startups amongst its current and past members, including Vow, Great Rap, and recent guest Tina Funder from Alt Leather. We speak about systems thinking, the pitfalls of traditional science pathways, creating new ones at CoLabs, expanding the innovation ecosystem, and keeping a keen focus on giving more than they take. Please enjoy my discussion with Samuel Wines. All right, today on the show, we welcome Samuel Wines, one of the co-founders of CoLabs. Samuel and his co-founder, Andrew, were introduced to me by a former guest, Tina Funder, who makes use of the CoLab space. Tina describes CoLabs as the we work for science. Samuel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us on. It's a pleasure to be here. I used to use the WeWork of Science as well, but then, you know, they haven't exactly had the best PR in the last couple of years. So I've been trying to figure out a different analogy and I've settled on the Uber of Science. You know, that whole share economy concept, I think, really explains what we do as well. Yeah, I guess the best way to describe it for listeners who haven't been to the space or who haven't met Andrew and Samuel is that it is a co-working space specifically for tech and innovation. So in and amongst those analogies of it being a WeWork or an Uber for science, how would you best describe what you're trying to do and, and who you are? Yeah, that's easy enough for me to do. We are a transdisciplinary innovation hub and biotech co-working laboratory. What we mean when we say transdisciplinary is that a lot of the complex problems that we face now in the world around us are multifaceted and interconnected. So having problems in social sphere overlaps into the ecological sphere and then can also impact the psychological sphere of the individual as well. So there's different stresses in all these systems and it's hence why we say it's really important to have a transdisciplinary mindset that goes beyond any of the silos of traditional thinking, hence the transdisciplinarity, just to help define that and make sure that that makes sense. And yeah, when we say a co-working laboratory, essentially what happens is we have laboratory benches for hire. So you can come in for an hour, a day, a month, or however long you need and we essentially provide flexible turnkey solutions for laboratory space. It's PC2 lab space, which just stands for physical containment level two. You know, there's a certain equipment that you just need to be able to make things happen. So primarily for obviously biotech, but we still have people coming in who have an engineering background or a design background as well. Just depending on the projects, we can help however is needed. But it's also really difficult because... Yes, it's a laboratory as a service, but we also provide innovation as a service, I guess you could say. If you want to come in with an idea, we can help with the technical side of things or we can help with the business side of things. And we might not know the technical side or the business side of things, but we're happy to help you figure out that first next step. Or we'll go off and do some research and provide some pointers on what would be a great place to start or whether or not you're coming to us with something that's totally sci-fi and there's, there's no side to it, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, awesome. I guess the biggest question that flows on from that is why somebody would need this space to begin with. And I guess where I want to start with that is to talk about the science and innovation landscape as it is, or historically as it is, and what niche Colabs ends up filling as a result. So if you were a casual innovator or an academic of some kind, what's the current process that you might have to go through in order to test and develop your own idea? Right. Yeah, that's a really good question. So if you actually don't fit within the current standard narrative of doing innovation, which might be going through a university or going to a research organization like a CSIRO, it can be, I mean, science and innovation is very much pay to play, right? Like if you need a laboratory to do your research, you need a lab and you might not have a couple of million dollars to be able to fit out your own lab. So there's an incredibly steep barrier to entry just from the onset. And a lot of these laboratories, even though you might go to a university, you'll need someone to provide oversight for you or you need to be able to go in when there's a supervisor who can watch you as a student. That can be limited. And as well, it might be limited to what the supervisor has in their general field of interest. And it's no one's fault per se, right? It's just the fact that if you look at it from a systems-informed perspective, what are the inputs and the outputs of uni? You have students coming in and they want papers coming out at the end of the day, publishing new and novel insights, that's not necessarily how innovation works per se, right? Because you want to be having an idea and then translating it all the way to actualization in the market and scaling it up. So even from the onset, the incentive alignment isn't quite there. We do our best to make it work in the current system, but I guess we just noticed that there were a couple of patterns and processes that kept reappearing. And we realized that yeah, it can be very difficult to make that sort of thing happen because publish or perish really is something that most academics have to face. And you have to try and land these grants, which are hyper competitive. And then you might not actually have time to even be able to pursue something that might have popped up in your research that you thought could be potentially a pathway towards something innovative because you have to worry about, oh, how do I maintain my position in here? So if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you're constantly having to worry about money or whether or not there's stability in your life, because these grants last for about three years, it can be very difficult, to be honest, to try and make something happen on top of trying to also have a career in academia. Obviously, there are some people who do it and power to them, you know, but uh, let's just say that not everyone is cut from the same cloth and everyone has different pathways and ways that they might want to make things happen. So our ecological niche is filling the space to hold the gaps where things fall through the cracks. And then also... I'd say our primary objective is helping support and catalyze the transition to a circular, bio-based, regenerative economy. When I say circular, I mean trying to help close the loop on our material ecosystem, whether that's the technical nutrient cycle or the biological nutrient cycle, just doing our best to keep things in use as much as possible so that we can try and bring ourselves within the planetary boundaries. We're doing a lot of extraction and exploitation of the natural environment and rare earth minerals and resources, but we can't keep perpetuating that forever on a planet with finite resources. So we need to get a lot better at recirculating, reusing, reducing, all of that sort of, hence the circularity. And it's also just the way nature works. One organism's waste is another organism's food. When we say bio-based, another thing to pull out of that is that we're trying to help as much as possible, reduce our reliance on technical nutrients, which, for example, might be something that's not bio-based. So think plastics, petrochemicals, anything like that. We're trying to find ways in which we can replace technical nutrients with biological nutrients using mycelium, 
to create like a polystyrene drop-in for packaging, maybe using PHA, which is a bacterially produced product that can be a drop-in for soft plastics. Using algae to be able to create a yarn to be able to replace polyester fabrics. You know, these sort of things are what I mean by switching to bio-based. And when I say regenerative, it can be a tricky one to define just because it's such a constantly adapting, evolving, changing space. I kind of like that about it. But when I say regenerative, it essentially means like giving more than what we take. So as an organization on multiple levels, we try and give more than we take and we try and support the ecosystem as a whole. So we don't see people as competitors. They're potentially collaborators. We have people coming into the space who pay for leasing ventures and then that also allows us to be able to fund and support student groups or people who want to do research that might be a not-for-profit or a charity and who can't afford it, then we can provide the work for them pro bono. So it's like not just maximizing financial return, but optimizing for the system as a whole. So helping build social ecological capital, helping build knowledge capital and transference amongst people. Essentially, the whole thing is trying to support the pipeline of innovation from education to research to innovation, because they're kind of a autocatalytic set that need to be supporting one another to make anything happen. And as I said, the unis do an amazing job around that first area and it's the translation which can be quite difficult to make happen because there are some incentives that might not be as aligned due to the nature of what an educational institution is meant to be doing yeah awesome fantastic answer great now you've thrown a whole bunch of detail at us and where i want to go from here is to dive into your personal background just to learn how you've actually come into this space because by training you don't have a scientific background you started off in marketing and fashion and have now ended up running a transdisciplinary innovation space so talk me through that journey and if there's anything you learned along the way that helped you with starting collabs yeah absolutely i grew up out in alinda which for anyone who doesn't know where that is in melbourne that's out in the eastern suburbs in um i guess guess it's technically wet scleral rainforest so i grew up surrounded by living systems and nature and my whole life was running around in my grandma's garden and just having this innate feeling for what it's like to be surrounded by life and i didn't realize that not everyone has that so naturally as i grew up i had a really big interest in biology my parents were very interested in business and politics and I guess the ethics behind how the world works and and how it could potentially work better was obviously a big topic of discussion at the dinner table. So naturally, I got interested in business as well and exploring ways in which we could potentially try and base business on biology and uh, economics on ecology because biology and ecology is how the world works, but then business and economics is the the narrative or the story about how the world works that we tell ourselves, which is kind of a, a social construction which can be technically changed at any time we decide to. I kind of had an interest in those two fields, but I couldn't really figure out how to connect them to begin with. I studied a double degree at Deakin in commerce and science. Funnily enough, would have been at Deakin the same time Andrew was, but we wouldn't have crossed paths. I would follow the modus operandi, the principle of like, most money for least effort and I used to like going out and music so I became a DJ and then I ran uni parties and then through all of that and through DJing I got into modeling and then through modeling realized that you could make money on social media and got into 
influencing and set up a men's fashion publication and creative agency to help brands with creating content for social media. That was going really, really well. But after a while, I guess I realized that that doesn't really align with what I wanted to do long term. After a music festival, I had the realization that I was meant to be in service of life and a life scientist, very much like the Lorax, right, who speaks for the trees. So that kind of got embedded in my mind at that festival, came back. And then that's when I reached out to Andrew at Bioquisitive to try and find ways to get involved at the lab. And then we set up TPSP, so the training school program. And then that was going really well. We donated around about eight tons of equipment to schools, to maybe 30, 35 schools. And then COVID hit and it hasn't really picked up a crazy amount since then. But during that COVID time, we came to the, this is when I was reading a lot about designing regenerative cultures, the living systems view of life, the red Tyson Porter's sand talk as well. I was stepping into this whole sort of holistic science complexity approach. I'd always been really interested in that, like trying to find ways to weave together all the different fields of knowledge, because to me, they're all interconnected. You don't look outside and see a commerce. You don't look outside and see a biology. It's all interwoven, interconnected and enfolded within one another. And I hadn't found a framework that allowed me to make sense of that because when you go to uni it's like you study this you study that you might have a few breath subjects I really wanted to study this but couldn't find a way to do it at uni so I ended up self-teaching myself in all of this stuff and then yeah so it was Fritjof Kapur and Daniel Weil were two prominent thinkers that kind of gave the scaffolding and the framework for what then became CoLab after Andrew told me that he had a team of 30 people asked if they could lease out Bioacquisitive, which was the community science lab, which was built in a shipping container, which had two benches in there. And he let me know that there was a couple of other startups interested in wanting to use the lab space. He was like, what do you reckon? Should we, you know, and we'd built up quite a good relationship from the Phoenix School program. And we're like, yeah, let's give this a crack. Let's try and do a social enterprise because there's this weird cognitive dissonance where people might not pay you to do things as a charity, but they're more than happy to pay you to do things as a social enterprise, as a business. It's a funny one. That's how Colabs was born. We were a COVID baby. During COVID, we founded and we had two companies in there to begin with who were doing COVID-related research with regard to removing airborne pathogens was one and then rat tests was another. And once COVID wrapped up, the place filled up pretty quick. Yeah, awesome. Wild ride from uni days all the way up to here, hey? Every time anyone talks about having a really straight shot at anything in life, I'm like, I... I <laughs> That's just not what happened in both mine or Andrew's way of approaching things. I think it's just good for people to know that it doesn't have to make sense while you're on the journey. But it's obviously really easy to look back and go, oh, yeah, of course, like in retrospect, this was inevitable. A lot of the time, it's it's far from that when you're in the thick of it. It's very hard to see the forest from the trees sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And slightly funny in, in hindsight that you had your moment of clarity from a music festival which a lot of enlightening moments come from music festivals, I've heard. Yeah, I, to be honest, I think I think that there's a really simple reason for that. And it's that you are going to a place that is separate from time and space within which you normally perform your patterns and processes and habits and behaviors. And a lot of the time, yeah, you can experience things where you go, okay, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that because when you're surrounded by nature and, and good music and good friends, when you do have three or four days at a festival that isn't back-to-back with meetings, you can actually have time to think. And I think that really obviously proved to be a pivotal moment in what happened here. And um, funnily enough, Andrew was at that festival as well, and I didn't see him, and we were at the same set 
which was pretty funny. So every now and then we play that set whenever we have to do like the painting in the lab or something like that and then joke about how we would have both been there. Nice. Okay, I want to circle back to the validation of the concept for collabs from your bioquisitive days and then having a raft of people express interest in wanting to rent lab space. That must have been the light bulb moment where you and Andrew realized, hey, people actually want this. How did you actually put the word out in order to get all of this attention? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I'd say, obviously, Bioquisitive was how it started to begin with, but we'd been in dialogue with the Victorian government for a while, and they knew that we were interested in doing this. So just through conversations with them, and then conversations with our network, people would obviously reach out to Bioquisitive, and then you'd make friends with all these other people. And then after a while, startups would get in contact with you. So all of it was organic, emergent marketing and connecting with people in the network. We didn't do really do any marketing aside from putting up an ad on Google and we didn't even do any AdWords. It was just like rent lab space Melbourne because there was nothing there. So we didn't have to worry about trying to compete with anything really. It's been very re- passive and receptive to an extent. It hasn't been a crazy amount of active investment in it. And because there's literally nothing like this. And we knew from multiple places and sources that this was something that was needed. It was just a bit of a no-brainer. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And we also knew that the government was interested because they brought over a couple of companies that do a similar thing in the States. So they brought over Biolabs to Australia. And Andrew was at that conversation with them, CSL, Melbourne Uni, and a few others. And I think the unis were kind of like, yeah, we already do this. And Andrew was like, no, you don't. And Biolabs didn't really see much of a market here. They're like, oh, we can't really see any startups. But we'd been reading all the reports for the last five to 10 years and studying up on, we know how many organizations were coming through the pipelines and founded in Australia and in Victoria in the life sciences sectors. And we knew that we only needed to capture like 1% of the market each year for Victoria to be able to fill the space up. That, and that was like startups that have been founded. So there's obviously a whole bunch of them that don't even have an ABN or anything like that. So after a while, to use a line that many people have said to us, like all roads lead back to Collabs because we're starting to build this network and people end up just coming back to us and being like, oh, we heard about you through this, that and the other. Sometimes the simplest ideas are the best or sometimes it's just being in the right place when an idea's time has come. We use the analogy of surfing. It's like waiting for the right set of waves to come through and then you just jump on it. So it's like the whole opportunity, right time, right place. That kind of is how we got started. My other question was around, I guess, talent in Australia specifically, because you mentioned that the Victorian state government had brought in a company from the States to have a look at how they might set up a similar function here. Where my question is going is, do you feel like you're opening up opportunity for companies to start and stay here or just start here because there's been I guess, a relatively long history of companies who don't find the support that they might want here in Australia and then head overseas to make names for themselves. Yeah, look, we've had other startups say that they would have left the state or gone elsewhere if that was the case. And we have so much talent here. We have so many people going through university who are in that sort of life sciences sector. But it's just showing ways in which people can make things happen. Like we wouldn't have many musicians if we didn't give kids instruments. You know, we're not going to have many innovative scientists if they don't know what's possible uh, and then what can be done and what are some of the challenges that we face as a species and then how can we try and apply a biological inspired or bio-based design or innovation to solve that or address that. 
we have the talent. And that's another thing we do is we also connect students to startups. So people might reach out to us and go, hey, I really want to do X, Y, and Z. We go, okay, cool. Have you thought about connecting with this person or let's link you up with that person or you can come into the lab and work on your skills at Bioacquisitive to be able to, you know, someone say, let's say someone wants to do cultivated meat, right? They can't go and study that at uni, but they can come here and practice. And by coming here and practicing, the startups that might be interested in them are here as well. It's really about weaving things together and providing a pipeline of talent for the startups, providing a pipeline of key thinkers in certain disciplines to be able to help and consult and support startups. We really try and act like the mycelial network, weaving together the the trees in the forest and sharing knowledge and information and resources between them and helping ensure that it's a thriving ecosystem. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so you've mentioned quite a few times now that there's been a lot of startups who have reached out to you and who currently occupy the space. So let's talk about Colabs itself and the space and how people use the space. Firstly, who is this space for? Because you've mentioned transdisciplinary. There's going to be all kinds of different people who might want to make use of the space. Who is it for, firstly, and how would they go about using Colabs? Yeah, the whole premise of the space is to democratize access to enabling infrastructure to be able to support people from all walks of life. So the whole point is that a lot of this stuff can be very hard to get access to unless you're privileged enough to be able to have access to a university lab or something of the like. The whole point is to make it easy for people to engage in and with, whether it's from the educational point of view, the research point of view, or the innovation perspective as well. If someone is interested in coming along, they can come down to one of our community science nights, which usually it's on Monday nights, but we haven't been able to do it for a while just because we're busy building the second facility down the road. Um, But usually people would send us an email and then let us know about their work and what they're doing. And then we say whether or not that's something we support or not. So it has to be values aligned and impact oriented. As I said to you before, helping raise social foundations for people. So it could be social innovation, you know, because Colabs is technically a social form of innovation, um, not actually really a technical one, which is quite an interesting thing, but we support technical innovation. So yeah, if it's raising social foundations or bringing us within planetary boundaries, then they are things that we are happy to try and support. We have key themes or areas that we're very interested in, which is replacing plastics, finding leather alternatives, finding ways in which we can do new forms of agriculture, which is less harmful to the planet. Anything that helps reduce the resource intensivity, then we're happy to look at exploring and supporting that. But you're not necessarily going to find us working on anything that might be like new ways of fracking to find oil or a new drug that we can just sell to people and doesn't actually solve an underlying problem. Everything that we vet and everything that we bring through the lab has to have that positive impact. uh, And we try and do our best to support an ecology of different organizations that can also feed in and network and support one another. So the diversity of startups helps build a resilient community and ecosystem. And it builds like what you would call like a collective intelligence around the space. So Someone might go, oh, I really need an aerospace engineer or oh, it would be great if I knew someone who was an expert in fluid dynamics. And then suddenly you have this, this web of people who can come and support you. That's what we've built. And obviously community was at the heart of everything we do. We started at the community science lab and we've tried to bring that into this space. And it's been really nice to see how those emergent relationships have formed. It kind of serves as a bit of a particle accelerator for ideas and innovation, which has been great. We've had about 15 companies come through thus far. 
we have 12 now. So we've had a couple of alumni who've graduated. We had great wrap in for a while working on some stuff in the lab. They do compostable cling wrap, but they're also interested in pellet wrapping. They were working on some formulas here while they were building their lab in Tullamarine. Absolutely love Geordie and Julia and Doc Marty, who was in here at the lab. They're a great crew. Another graduate was Radatech. So he was actually our first member, John John Lee from Radatech. So he was making rat tests for STIs and COVID using quantum dot technology. It was just like 10 times more sensitive than your standard rat tests. And yeah, he's graduated out and got his own space now, which is exciting. The whole point of what we do is that you don't want people to live here forever. We want them to be able to move on to bigger and better things. And if they need our help, and we can help them build space or support them with finding like new people to work for them. So like talent pipeline and all that sort of stuff, which is exciting. The startups that we currently have in there, we have two alternative protein or cultivated meat companies. We have Vows has a satellite lab down here in Melbourne, and we have Magic Valley. One's doing cultivated I think quail is going to be their first one out. Morsel is vow. And then we've got cultivated lamb and pork. That is what Magic Valley is currently working on. We have Australia's first golden kelp farm that we're helping set up. I like to call Andrew the uh, kelp daddy. So he has a kelp IVF clinic essentially downstairs that we've set up. We help them build an incubation station for kelp so that it's the right temperature and everything for them to be able to grow. So they're currently growing in the lab and we'll be seeding ropes to be able to put them out into the ocean soon to help draw down ocean carbon because they're, they're really effective at carbon sequestration. We have Puriflow and Sterobrite both doing sterilization technologies to remove airborne pathogens like COVID. We have Alt Leather who is using agricultural waste, you know, they've been on the podcast to create a leather alternative, which is really exciting. Another biodesign university group we've been helping called Agus they're looking at making non-woven fibers out of kombungai or bulrush, which is a native plant, which is somewhat of a weed somewhere. We're helping them find ways to be able to create replacements for PPE masks and lab gowns so that it's not using single-use plastics, which is pretty exciting. We have Simex who are doing a fertility patch. You stick it on your arm and then it's got microneedles which stick into the subdermal layer of skin and can pick up on key biomarkers related to fertility and it can have real-time tracking so that rather than a woman having to go in and get her blood taken once or twice a week, this can just be on and can help monitor throughout the different stages of her cycles. So it's a really, really useful, way less invasive and a really exciting technology that I think has just been backed and supported by Monash IVF, which is really cool. So yeah, that's coming along well. There's so many, so many fun humans that we have in here and we're just trying to do our best. We've been having to fly by the seat of our pants, setting the space up to get it all ready. So we haven't really had a chance to share as much about it, but we will be doing a lot more sharing and we'll have to introduce a few of them to you because I feel like that'd be great to have on the podcast. Yeah. Wonderful. Would love to get a chance to speak with them directly as well. Okay, so you've rattled off a whole bunch of different people working on different interesting challenges. Now, yourself and Andrew, you don't necessarily have expertise in all of these spaces. You said earlier that you might be able to help with the innovation process. So can you give us an example of how that sort of panned out using perhaps Tina and Alt Leather as an example, since they're a familiar name and a familiar company. 
Yeah, for sure. We haven't per se helped them out with the innovation facilitation as yet. But if you'd like me to bring up an example, I can speak through Sterobrite and how we got them on board. We built like a bioaerosol testing chamber for them to be able to test the device because that didn't exist in Australia. We essentially did a scoping to see what it is that they wanted to do, how to be able to test it, what standards we need to do, like from an ISO perspective. And then we pulled together a protocol, told them this is how long you'd want to test it. These are the model organisms you'd want to use. And here's how many hours it would take someone to do a test. And then we hired someone to be able to do that for them. And then we ran that for three, four months and then provided reports for them. That's one way in which we facilitated innovation at the lab. Another way that we've been doing with a nonprofit, which I mean, this will be pointless me showing you this for all the audio listeners, but it's a biomimetic approach to filtering out microplastics using a manta ray inspired filtration style, which is called ricochet filtration, which pushes the water out, but then brings all of the microplastics in. We've been helping out a industrial designer with that project. He's been coming into the lab and we just help out for free because they're part of the Yarra River Keeper, which is a not-for-profit trying to make the Yarra River or the Birrarung swimmable by 2030. And this is one of their initiatives that they've got some government funding for. That's one of the things where we're like, we really want to support people with great ideas who might not have the money because ultimately the ecosystem and nature totally underlies everything that we do our economy is totally dependent on it our livelihoods are totally dependent on it hence our need to be able to support that and regenerate that sort of stuff hence why we help them out on that project so it's all tailored we don't have any expertise in fluid dynamics or any of this sort of stuff but i think what we are experts in is giving things a crack and understanding that you can always use the internet or find someone who might be able to help out and that more often than not people are really happy to have a conversation and explore things with you which is something that a lot of people don't realize. Almost also helping people realize that they might have limiting beliefs that they might not even know about. And just being around other people with a different worldview and a different perspective and a different approach can really help change that for people or help kick people down a pathway which they might not have thought about by themselves. That's our strength. So Andrew is very much from like a, I guess you could say like, uh, mechanic engineer thinking perspective about how he approaches things. So we have that and then try and bring that complexity informed living systems thinking approach into it as well. So looking at what are the nth order effects and how do ethics weave into this and just because we can, should we, how do we work with and dance with living systems? How do we swap away from the language of command and control towards a more collaborate um, sort of mentality so much more relational approach to doing business or innovation. So we provide little seeds for ideas and then try and do our best to, to lay the foundations to allow those to grow into a lovely little ecosystem. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so given the wide nature of companies that come through your doors, both those who are present and those who have graduated and become alumni, I'm guessing here, but please uh, sense check me on this, there's going to be a huge variety of equipment that you might need in order to satisfy the testing requirements that every single company might need. So I'm wondering what kinds of equipment can you supply? And this is also, I guess, a question on behalf of people who might want to join Collabs is what kinds of equipment can you supply in order to support your customers? And by extension of that as well is how much does this cost? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. If we can find it on eBay, you could probably get it for you or on a secondhand shop or brand new. But essentially through functioning and operating um, at the PC2 
laboratory, you know, there's a certain equipment that you just need. So whether that's a laminar flow hood, a fume hood, a biosafety cabinet, these are just all different ways of ensuring that the user is protected or that the sample is protected from the user when you're doing your work. There might be a centrifuge which is needed, or you might want to run gels for gel electrophoresis, or you might need a PCR machine, or minus 80, minus 20 freezers, and then fridges, pets, glassware, all of this sort of stuff that is needed in a basic lab we provide. But if someone has something really specific that they want to bring in, we can help them find that, or we can acquire it. And we can either buy it for people in the lab if there's a communal use case for it. But if it's something really specific just for a company, that might be something that they need to purchase. But it's something that we could buy and then they could pay it off over time on their membership agreement or however it works. We're really flexible in trying to make things work for people who want to make things happen in the lab. Okay. And how much does membership cost at Collabs? Yeah, so it varies. As we said before, students and people who just wanted to get the hands-on or get into the lab, we have Bioacquisitive, which is a like a membership-based model. I believe it was $50 a month to be able to join and have access to the lab. I feel like it might still be that going forwards, but it hasn't been thus far. Like We provide lab space for free to a couple of Melbourne University groups and RMIT students working on synthetic biology projects and alternative protein stuff. But then if you're coming into the lab, into our Brunswick facility, it is currently 2000 a month. But that would be for one lab bench and one user. If you need an extra user, it's like additional fees associated with bringing the extra user in. If you want to shrink or grow your like lab needs, you can do that whenever you want on a monthly basis or not. We don't have lock-in contracts. We just have month by month or week by week, whatever people need. If someone says that they want to be there for a year, we're happy to provide a discount for that amount of time. We just try and be as flexible for startups as possible. I guess that's the whole premise of being a social enterprise is that we're just essentially trying to make it as easy as possible for people who are trying to do good to do good things. So yeah, the current model is at 2000 for a lab bench. And then once the Monash facility comes online, Hopefully at the end of this year, that facility might be more like 2,500 just because it's going to be a world-class facility. Whereas what we've built here is very much an MVP model just to prove the point that this is something that is like valid and needed. Our whole point will be to be able to build a diverse ecosystem of resources at different price points so that people can enter wherever they need to be able to support them on their journey and that's the approach we'll have. So as time goes on and as people need more specific and technical space and requirements, we can then support that as well. We grow as our members grow as well because we can then go on to provide them a new space where they might only want it for three or four years, but they don't want to have to own everything and all of that sort of stuff. Very much laboratory as a service model that we try and scale up with them and help them all along the way. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, you've alluded to it multiple times now, the fact um, you're looking for values and outcomes alignment with the companies and founders that you take on at Colabs. So obviously, the aim is that they're tackling really pressing global issues. And at this point in time, at least prior to expansion, we can talk about expansion in a little bit. At this point in time, you have limited bench space. What is the vetting process for all of the companies that come through in terms of, I don't know, do you stack rank values alignment? If there happens to be two companies who are trying to work in the same space and you only have one spot, how do you pick one over the other? Is there a whole process behind that? 
We do have a vetting process and obviously it needs to also fall within the biosecurity and biocontainment protocols that we have to uphold for PC2 status. We can't do any plant GMO sort of work in this lab or we don't have clean room facilities or anything like that. So yeah, there are certain restrictions from that perspective as well. We think of ourselves as a semi-permeable membrane. Most things can get in, but obviously there are some things that it's like actually um, we'd rather not support that just because it doesn't align. And there have been a couple of cases of that, but I I just, uh, I think I'll leave that. I won't necessarily mention names or anything of the likes. I don't think that's fair on them. We try and to our best do a yes and approach. So for example, as I said before, we have both Vow and Magic Valley working out of this lab. Now that's two companies in the exact same space working out of the same laboratory. That's pretty unheard of and that's not normal. That happened through obviously being able to talk to the whole concept of collaboration and cooperation rather than competition and that they were at very different life cycles of their organization and different forms of IP. But obviously they still both have signed NDAs and they still operate in the same space. Vow were in first and they were comfortable with that after we explained it and then that allowed Magic Valley to come in but there's no need to worry about any IP issues because that's just more about the spirit of the space that makes things happen. I wouldn't say that we try and stack or rank things because I don't think that there's like a hierarchy of impact. It's really hard to know when you're dealing with complex systems what's more important. Obviously, you know, try and find like really big levers for change, but it can be hard to know because everything's nonlinear. So from our point of view, it's just really trying to have a diverse portfolio of different people in so that if we look at that approach to be able to support systems innovation, you want to have a divorce portfolio of different people in working on different projects that have different kinds of impact. And I feel like we've balanced that quite well. And that's something that we're having in mind as well for the new facility too. We had a really big company come on board who are interested in taking three quarters of the space, but we're leaning away from that because we would actually rather have more smaller members being able to get in who aren't multi-billion dollar multinationals because they're the ones who need the help and support. It's definitely looking at supporting people who we feel might have an inordinate amount of positive impact that could come from their startup, whether that's the social or ecological foundations that we were speaking about before. And then also just, you could say, community cultural alignment as well. Like, will they fit into the space? Do they seem like they understand or accept the values of who we are and what we're trying to strive towards? Okay, great. That leads me nicely on to my next question about your expansion plans and the next steps. So obviously today, Andrew can't join us because he's off building the second facility down the road. And you've also alluded to the bigger, better, shinier version at Monash University as well. What do you envision those new facilities to be? And do they then change who you can support and how you can support them? Yeah, to an extent, yes. So it will still pushing for the transdisciplinary approach, although the funding that we received was from a source. I don't know if I can technically say where it was from, but let's just say that it was to support med tech manufacturing capabilities. So there's obviously a bit of an incentive down at this Monash facility to support that. And then also, if you just contextualize it within the innovation ecosystem that's down there, there is a big focus on things like med tech. So we have partnered with CCRM as well down there. And we know Silvio and the team from there and Army as well. We're looking at finding ways to work with an engineering hub down there in Monash as well. So we're trying to find ways to weave into that ecosystem down there and provide things that are contextually relevant. 
But essentially, it would be six six hundred meter squared lab pods across two levels, along with communal facilities and co working. And then co-located office spaces within the Furniture Gully Business Park would also be available for startups interested. Yeah, fantastic. There might actually be a former guest I could introduce you to if MedTech is the space that's going to be the focus down there. Now, there's some confidential information, which you can't share, obviously, but I'm wondering if there's any dream organizations that you'd want to partner with as you expand the collabs concept and footprint? Yeah, definitely. We've been in conversations with the crew at Blackbird VC for a while now about supporting this sort of stuff. They have a pretty similar alignment in wanting to support synthetic biology and deep tech startups that are trying to make an outsized impact on the world. Obviously, we have Vauinir, who's been Blackbird-backed, as well as Cortical Labs, who uh, they're just about to move into the new facility that we're building. So in two weeks, they'll be able to fully move in. That's pretty exciting. Being able to support them is a pretty big dream come true they're doing a silicon neuron chip interface so they taught brain cells how to play pong and they're looking at finding ways to do organic computation which is pretty insane but in terms of people that we'd love to support it's just i mean any startup who's been struggling to try and make things happen or has that like that desire to make the world a better place we're really interested in partnering with and supporting we've been working closely with the victorian government to get this facility up and running and we've been consulting on a new Arden Precinct that's popping up as well near North Melbourne. Government is really big for us to be able to partner with and work with and we've been in chats with the New South Wales government as well and hopefully the Queensland government soon too. I think it's really important to explore how public funding can be used in an entrepreneurial manner and in a way that can support and provide funding for these startups who might not be able to get funding without government support. So we're exploring and consulting on ways in which we could set up government-backed non-diluting equity funds to be able to support some of these startups during their initial phases. And then maybe they could do an initial seed round investment so that as that company scales, they can get money to put back into a fund to invest in the next round of companies. Things like that we're exploring, which would be really fun. The one dream organization, we've been in chats with um, with Murray Gray from Metabolic Ventures, which is based in the Netherlands. And they're looking at doing systems-informed regenerative venture capital funding models. So really interested in trying to find ways to collaborate with them. But they've got the the thinking and we've got the infrastructure. So really exploring ways to be able to collaborate with people with the language and the programming to go alongside the infrastructure to be able to support and scale up this much-needed innovation across the globe. We are exploring how we can make that happen in other countries too, which is really exciting. We've been in chats with people like the CSIRO and, and a couple of universities as well. So honestly, we're just happy to be able to work with anyone and everyone. And if our idea can spur on this sort of stuff happening in, in universities or other places, then the more people doing this, the better, or the more lab space available in this style, the better. We're not phased if other people start doing the same sort of thing. It just it works out well for everyone if that happens. Yeah, fantastic. I have a few questions spinning out of that. Firstly, on top of even just setting up the new facilities, it seems like there's all of these partnerships brewing. And as a consequence of that, probably a lot more work heading down the pipeline just for you two. So my first question is, do you think you need any help? Oh, gosh. Yeah, of course. Definitely. Luckily, we have a pretty strong stream of like interns and volunteers who come through who are interested in supporting and helping 
We definitely will be scaling up the team. Once these new facilities are online, we'll probably look at hiring another human to help us out. And then obviously when the Monash Uni site comes online, we'll probably look at hiring another two people, at least three or so people in the pipeline in the next little bit. Definitely obviously need to grow the team and really focusing on trying to find those creative out-of-the-box thinkers with a DIY mindset who are happy to try and make things happen. Because like most things that we do can be learned or self-taught or we can show the processes and patterns that we use here. But it's just having people with that spark of curiosity that's really important. In terms of bringing people on, we're kind of doing the work of four people as two people. Uh, Andrew's doing the work of about three of those people. We definitely need to expand our capacity, but it's just one of those things that because we're not optimizing for financial ROI and we are trying to support people, that means that we are less able to bring people like resource ourselves. But that's something that we totally acknowledge. And as we have more space coming online at Unit 20 just down the road, there will be enough money coming from that site to be able to fund bringing someone else on board, which is exciting. Fantastic. Okay. In the interest of time, we'll start wrapping up the conversation and I'll ask, I guess, what is now the traditional last two questions that I ask people? If everything goes right for yourself and for Andrew and for Colabs, what do you think the world looks like then? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. So what we would hope the world would look like would be in the next five to 10 years that we have made big steps towards making that transition to a circular bio-based and regenerative economy. And some things might be revolutionary changes, but most things are going to be evolutionary changes. And we just need to acknowledge and understand that. And I would hope that if everything goes right in the future, there'd be a distributed network of these laboratories across Australia and throughout the world where there can be more of like this open science and innovation going on as well. So currently we play within the current paradigm and it's very much geared towards the standard narrative of business, but we're also very interested in exploring open innovation or IP NFTs where you can fractionalize IP to people who put in the work. So you could create decentralized autonomous organizations with people from all around the world who are contributing to a project and those contributions that are made, those people get paid out from the company as those things work. We're very curious about exploring new ways of working and new ways of doing business that actually support people on the planet rather than just maximizing shareholder returns. So if everything goes right, I would love to see a lot more enabling infrastructure that's accessible to the people, a lot more education and research in those spaces that are supporting people with developing and cultivating eco-literate worldviews and ecologically informed approaches to design and innovation that are helping build healthy, resilient social and ecological systems. Fantastic. Okay, considering where we're starting from now at this point in time to get to that dream scenario, what do you think you personally need to do to drive that vision? Well, uh, I think a big part, funnily enough, is actually just sharing a bit more about what's going on here and what we do. Just because we've been so heads down focused on building and creating it's ironic given the fact that I used to run a digital marketing agency. That's probably the thing that's lacking the most. But I think that's really it for us is helping get the narrative out there and helping people realize you don't need to be an Einstein to make things happen. We're just two regular dudes giving something a crack. And sometimes that can be enough to show people that anything is potentially possible if you apply yourself to it and, and try and work things out. So I think just, yeah, Getting things out there, helping people realize that this sort of space exists, and then 
helping support people to try and bring their ideas to reality. So that'll be another thing for us, I think, as well as as the space begins to grow, really building out the support that we provide to people. So that innovation facilitation is, is going to be something that only continues to grow over the next little bit. And then, yeah, as well, like we'll probably end up building our own investment fund and startup factory as well to address some of those key problems that we find are big issues. And we'll be exploring ways to integrate DAOs or IP NFTs and open innovation frameworks to be able to make that happen. So we really can start shaking things up and exploring alternative ways of doing business. Fantastic. Wild vision of the future. Samuel, thank you so much for your time. The last thing that I'll get you to do is to share any socials or contact info in case anybody's listening is curious and wants to reach out to you. For sure. So the company's details, it's at collabs.oz on Insta and then just searching Collabs Australia on LinkedIn, Facebook or whatever, you'll find us there. We used to be Collabs Melbourne. We just rebranded because obviously we're looking interstate. Um so yeah you'll find us there mine yeah obviously samuel wines you can find me on instagram or linkedin you're always welcome to reach out and have a chat it's just exciting to be able to connect with other people interested in trying to make things happen obviously our website as well which is just collabs.com.au so they can jump on there and reach out we're in the middle of building a new website which will be coming online really soon so yeah keep an eye out and then we'll be having little bits of content featuring our community and what they're getting up to as well as educational resources which will be coming online in the next six to 12 months as well excellent thank you once again samuel thanks so much that's it for today's episode of promise be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing send me an email to sean at promise.fm Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is promise.